Welcome to The Brian Buffini Show, where we explore the mindsets, motivation, and methodologies of success. Here's your host, Brian Buffini. Well, the top of the morning to you. Welcome to today's show. I am very, very excited to bring you a special guest this morning. Our podcast today is entitled The NFL's Little Engine That Could, and uh, never was a truer word spoken. Justin Forsett has had an illustrious career in the NFL. He's with the Denver Broncos as we speak. He's been in the league for nine years. He has a phenomenal story, a story that I think will inspire and encourage you. Justin and I have been friends for quite some time, and he is going to share with you his story today in the hopes that it can encourage you. Because if you're dealing with something today, if you've had setbacks, if you've had difficulties, if you've had people treat you bad or not see you for your value, whatever you're struggling with today, I believe uh, Justin has a message that will encourage and give you hope. He has been fired by six teams. That's his claim to fame and played for seven. <laughs> yes. <laughs> That's a great claim to fame. Yeah. He was not highly recruited uh, in high school and college, and everywhere he's gone, they've always wanted to get rid of him. Other than that, he's been in high demand. And through that, he has come through all of these setbacks, challenges, and difficulties, and not only has become a champion, not only been recognized by his peers, the highest real honor you can get is being a a Pro Bowl selection, voted by his peers in the top 100 players when he was with the Baltimore Ravens, all of those great things. But uh, there's a story here that I think that can really help. And Justin, we're delighted to have you here today. Thanks for making the trek in. Thanks for having me. And we're excited for just you to tell your story a little bit here today, because I think so many people, they turn on ESPN, they watch Monday Night Football, and it's a bunch of uniforms running around, they have fantasy points for their teams, but rarely do they realize the kind of stories that are on the field there. Right. And you got a great one. And I want to walk you through that today, and I want to ask you some questions, because I know how transparent a guy you are. And I believe in that you're going to help a lot of people today. And I know service is a big deal to you. Yes, sir. So we're going to start at the beginning. You grew up in a little town, 3,000 people called Mulberry, Florida. Yeah. Talk to us what life was like in Mulberry, Florida in the Forsett home. You know, small town, small community. Everybody knows each other's business. Mm -hmm. Not a lot of people make it out to accomplish their dreams and goals. Like you said, it's 3,000 people. The city name Mulberry came from the tree that's in the middle of town that used to hang slaves uh, a long time ago. So a lot of history there, a lot of hurt there, a lot of stuff to overcome. But it's a city and a town that's very powerful, hardworking, just tough, blue-collar folk. You were saying there's a mine and there's a (laughs) furniture factory. (laughs) Yeah. And you're either in one of those two places. Yeah, you got a couple options. And that's usually the phosphate mine or the Badcock Furniture store that we have down there. But, yeah, that's usually the option you have after graduating high school. Right. And so your story is your dad was uh, a pastor. Right. Small church. In fact, uh, I believe in the early days, the Forsett family was the entire congregation. (laughs) That's it. That's it. Just us five in there. But, yeah, I'm a PK. Yeah. And uh, I made it out all right. Pastor's kids. I know the pastor's kids get a bad rap sometimes, but I made it out okay. I'm in the middle of two children. I have an older brother and younger brother. They're very close to me. Both parents in the home. Solid group. So 
your dad wasn't just a pastor. He was also a bit of an entrepreneur. You guys had a, a barbecue shack of some sort? Yeah, we had a barbecue restaurant that we had for some years. We have a family secret sauce that we have. Nice. That's a secret recipe that's been in our family for a long time. That's passed down. So that brought a lot of people to our restaurant. He was a hardworking guy. Dad was a pastor, not only a truck driver. Hmm. He did everything. I thought he was part Jamaican for a long time. Yeah, but yeah three jobs. Yeah, a lot of jobs. <laughs> uh, but uh, just taught me really early on what hard work looks like. And things weren't always smooth. Y'all went through some tough times, I understand. In previous conversations, you told me your dad was a giver, but he was a giver to a fault. Yeah, yeah. He gave to a lot of people. He loved to serve people, but we were not financially stable a lot of times in our mm. life. Battled a lot of adversity. I remember times where there were power be out in the house and we're walking around with candles. I remember taking baths with water bottles. Uh, mm. I remember at the very lowest point of our lives where we were out of a home, living in a motel, mm. with no place to go, a motel that was right behind the football field, the youth football field that I played at, and down the street from the school that I was attending in middle school. So uh, at that time, it was a rough time for us. Didn't have a lot coming in, but we had each other. But it was a lot of embarrassment I would feel going to school, kids asking, why is your car parked outside of a motel? And I would come up with these different stories of mm. why we were there. So as a young kid, I really couldn't comprehend, you know, all that we were going through. Uh, I remember even running away from the repo man at times or guys coming to pick up our car and mm. we would park our car down the street and walk to our house so they wouldn't find the car and just battle these different things. But you know, I was able to channel that and use that as motivation, mm. you know, especially down in that motel room, room 108. I would mm. never forget being in that motel with two queen-size beds with five of us sleeping on the bed with the, the carpet was this blue-green vomit-looking color. And <laughs> those things stick out to me. And mm. I use that. And I promised myself that my family will never, ever have to go through that. When I have kids, like my sons will, will never have to battle through those mm. things. I would try my best and do my best so they wouldn't have to go through those things that I've been through. So that was motivation early so, on in my career. Think about it. It's almost 20 years. But you can picture, you know, room 108. Yes. You can picture the color of the carpet. Mm -hmm. And out of that circumstance, you kind of made a, some declarative statements. Yeah. Uh, I, I'm, I'm never coming back here again, mm -hmm. and I will never let this happen to my family. And that's a challenging thing because at the same time, your dad was doing his best. Mm -hmm. He's a man you admire and have admired your whole life. He right. was working hard, but yet the circumstances didn't work out very well. Obviously, you're feeling the embarrassment of your peers you're right by the football field, and yet they know you're living in a motel. Now, talk a little bit about this. You started playing football at a very young age, is that right? Young age, yeah. Seven years old. Wow. I started for the Mulberry Buccaneers. <laughs> and it wasn't the new Buccaneer colors that we have today with the red and mm. all of that. It was that ugly orange Popsicles. and red. Yeah, it was terrible. <laughs> but uh, I love football. I, I knew at an early age that's what I wanted to do. I, mm. I saw a guy named Barry Sanders that mm. I looked up to. He was exciting to watch on Sundays. I remember him, you know, he was playing on a terrible, terrible team, but he was just making these dynamic plays, and the announcers would talk about how small he was but mm. how dynamic he was also. So I was a guy that was small in stature, still am. Mm -hmm. uh, growing up, I was very small. I was never the biggest, the strongest, or the tallest. Uh, I was quite handsome, but, uh, <laughs> uh, you know, those other things I couldn't control, you know, so... I knew that I wanted to be pro, and I knew I had to put the work in to do so. You got a vision. You saw someone you could relate to who became a vision of what you could be. Mm 
mm-hmm. uh, small and yet dynamic. And, you know, I asked you today how tall you are, and you said 5'8", which is, by the yes. way, ladies and gentlemen, that is the program height <laughs> that is being delivered because I'm walking around here today like I am King Kong. Well... It depends on when I see my chiropractor. I usually <laughs> lengthen out when I see my chiropractor, so I usually get a little bit taller. So, although you have loyalty to this town, and I hear the affection in your voice, even though there's hurt in the history of this little town of Mulberry, mm-hmm. you say nobody really gets out of there. Right. You're a small running back. Your family's come on hard times. You fight through this, but you find something you can do, and you find that you're good at football, and you're hoping to progress. But the options aren't really there. There's not really a, a great gilded path out of Mulberry anywhere. Mm-hmm. So your family makes a very courageous decision. Yes, very courageous. They think that if you go to a prep school in Texas where they've done a little homework and have a connection there with a family member, mm-hmm. that if they leave and move to Texas, this might be a way for their boys to get out. And so the whole family picks up shop and moves to Texas. That's a pretty powerful <laughs> thing, isn't it? Super powerful. Just the sacrifice that they've made mm. so that their kids, my brothers and I, could have a better future and do things that they were never able to do, uh, never had access to, right. which is a bold move and meant a lot for us. Well, as a father myself, I mean, I think about picking up shop and leaving home and moving across the country to give my kids an opportunity. I would like to think I'd be the kind of man to do that. Your father and mother did do that yeah, and uh, gave you guys a chance. But again as is your particular path in life, <laughs> the welcome committee was not out. It's never easy. <laughs> I've never taken the easy route anywhere. Uh, but we moved there. Uh, we also brought a family friend with us who was having some trouble in school, and we brought him with us, and we all moved out to Texas, Arlington, Texas, at the school called Arlington Grace Prep Academy. And they were kind of a football powerhouse. Yeah, yeah, they are in a private school, but turned out some great championship teams, mm-hmm. very successful, had a coach that... Played in the NFL for a long time named Mike Barber, uh, who played tight end and had a lot of records. And so he knew how to mold players and get them to the next level. So it was a win-win for us. But, you know, me coming in as a, you know, throughout my whole career, even in the NFL, I've never been one of those guys to wow you coming off a bus. Like, you got to get to know me. You know, you got to see what I can do on the field. Uh-huh. You know, I'm not going to pass the look test when it comes to yeah. football players. Small in stature. Yeah. Didn't come with a lot of hoopla. Right, And when you got to Arlington, they weren't necessarily going to let you be a running back. And your family's moved across country, and the <laughs> football coach is going, uh, can you try out for a different position? Yeah, like you don't want me to be a slot receiver, you mm-hmm. know, mold me into this uh, Wes Walker-type uh, receiver, <laughs> which I wasn't. You know, I just knew I had to, you know, go out, perform, control what I control, excel at what I control, and put forth a great effort and you know, work hard. That's all I knew how to do. And so they had had good running backs. They already mm-hmm. had a couple of guys in place. So what did you do from the time you got there till how you made the team? Work, hmm. determination, sacrifice, everything that it took to learn that playbook, I was going to have it down. I knew when guys were going out, partying, drinking, doing all this other stuff, I knew I wanted to be a pro. That was my mindset from day one. So I wasn't going to let anything stop me, not grades in school, not girls out of school, not alcohol, not drugs, anything. Like I remember those days in that hotel room. I remember those days Mm. running from the repo, man. I remember those days uh, when the power is out and washing myself with a bottle of waters. I didn't want to go back there. Mm. I knew that being a pro was something that I could attain if I put my faith in it and put work into it. So. I was going to do whatever it took. So when people were going out and partying, I was doing a 1,000 push-ups and sit-ups a night, mm. making sure I was honing my skills and my craft. So 
I had to put in the work and I was just willing to do things people weren't willing or able to match. So you finally, you get yourself on the team mm -hmm. and it goes well. goes well. You start setting records, mm -hmm. running for lots of yards, scoring lots of touchdowns and back, end up winning two state championships. Back to back state champs. So now we go, okay, so the family payoff, you know, sometimes the sacrifice doesn't show up in reward right away. All of a sudden, hey, here it is. And so now you're going to get a chance after setting these state records, after running for 5,000 yards, after scoring 60-some touchdowns, there's got to be just every college in America just waiting in open arms to get their hands on J-Force. <laughs> you would think. You would. Uh, but no, that wasn't the case. People kept telling me things that I've been hearing my whole life, and even since Pop Warner. I mean, the college recruiters and scouts were saying, man, this guy's too small. He's not durable enough to play at this level. He's not fast enough. So I was overlooked. I got offered by UConn and took a trip up there. and They ended up uh, reneging on the scholarship, and then, you know, I was out. No one was offering me scholarships. I watched guys. Abilene Christian. <laughs> Abilene right? Christian. They said you could be a walk-on. They said I could walk on. And here's the deal. Here's a guy who's played in the NFL for nine years. There's people in Abilene who don't know who Abilene Christian is. Right? <laughs> and a walk-on means you are not given the opportunity for a scholarship. You've got to pay your own way along. You might or might not ever get a chance to play. Mm -hmm. And here's a program with no name at that time. I mean, there's been a few players come out of Abilene. Mm -hmm. But it's not a powerhouse program. No. And they don't think you're good enough to get a scholarship. The one place that gives you an offer then reneges on you. Mm -hmm. And where are you? What's going on? Well, I'm watching my friends who, at the time, the guy that we brought with us to Texas, I mean, he's uh, just a high school phenom. He was the number four ranked receiver in the country at the time. My quarterback was ranked around number 15, 16 quarterback in the country at the time. And I was kind of like a NR, not rated, uh, <laughs> guy coming out. But I had all these numbers. So I just continued to work. We ended up getting all the way to my high school senior all-star game. And the coach there was like, he was impressed with me and my ability. He was like, man, you can play D1 football. He said, I got a connection with Notre Dame, and I mm. want to send your tape that direction and see what they say. He got back to him and said, hey, man, they loved you. Notre Dame reached out to us. like They sent the running back coach down to see me and visit me, make sure everything was on the up and up. Mm. They said, man, we're going to offer you a scholarship. I was excited. I was thinking about, ooh, man, Notre Dame, touchdown, Jesus, Rudy. I mean, this is like a godsend. I mean, I'm short like Rudy. Yeah. I'm an underdog like Rudy. I mean, this is just this, the stars you're, you're are You're going from the outhouse to the penthouse. Yes, this is beautiful. So I'm thinking everything is going to work out. And then a week before signing day, they told me they didn't need me anymore. Wow. And I was just crushed. Just a guy that worked so hard. Gave up a lot, sacrifice, had the discipline to resist certain things, and finally thought I had something, and for it to just be taken away was heartbreaking. Mm -hmm. I was a man of extreme faith. I knew that I had the belief that anything could happen and doors could be open, and I knew I put the work in, so I was just extremely heartbroken when it didn't. I remember going down to my basement. Uh, that's where I lived, and my bed was downstairs, and I remember going down there crying my eyes out as a young teenager. And praying just like, man, something has to give. Something has to change in my life. And I remember getting up, praying, getting some peace about myself, and then getting up and feeling encouraged and inspired. And it was like, man, I'm not going to let anything hold me back. Mm. Uh, I'm not going to let this circumstance define me. I'm going to go continue to work and accelerate what I can control. And then uh, 
all of a sudden, you know, things start happening. Now, when we say things start happening, I, I got the dirt today, which is like maybe one of my all-time favorite stories I've ever heard in the sports world. So signing day comes and goes. That's in February for the non-sport folks. And typically that's the time when all the colleges have filled up all their scholarships and they're set for the next year. Yes. It's May, and you got one place that offered you that took their scholarship back. Mm-hmm. You had... Touchdown Jesus was coming to the rescue, and then they say they don't need you anymore. Yes. Now, you told me a story today that you got to tell this audience. Yeah. This is breaking news. <laughs> this is how Justin Forsett's world changed. You had a brother that believed in you. Yes. You had a brother that loved you, mm-hmm. and he was in college where? He was in college at Edward Waters College in uh, Jacksonville, Florida. Small school. Small, small was school. Was he playing ball? He was playing ball. Okay. Are they a Division three team? Is that what they are? I don't even know if they have a number. <laughs> it's just division. It is no one, two, or three. It's just... They're just they playing. Play, they play, yeah. So what I heard was that he started getting on the phone right. and calling schools and pretending to be a coach. Is that right? Yep, exactly. Now picture this. This kid's 19. <laughs> He's in college. But he believes in you. Mm-hmm. He knows what you got. And now picture the scene. Is he getting on the phone going, hello? <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure he had a little bass to his voice. <laughs> he like Theo uh, in the Cosby show. Exactly. <laughs> so he, he's changing up his voice and he's going out because he believes in me and he believes in my ability. And he's making calls on my behalf. He's going on there. He's talking to coaches like, hey, man, we have this player. And he's pretending to be a coach. Yes. Hey, he's, Not a his, player. His name was Coach Williams. <laughs> His name was Coach Williams. He made up this name. This is exclusive stuff that you're getting right here on this podcast. Sports Illustrated never got this. So he made up this name, Coach Williams. Said, hey, man, I'm Coach Williams. We're at this small school here. We got this tape from this young man, Justin Forsett. He looks unbelievable. He's just too good for us. We can't do anything with him. We think that you guys should take a look at him. Wow. And uh, he ended up making a call to UC Berkeley, talking to the running back coach there. And uh, he looked at the tape, was blown away, couldn't believe that I was available. Somebody got hurt on the team, which opened up a scholarship, and they offered me a scholarship. They offered you a scholarship. And now, just think about this. You know, no one believed in you. No one gave you a shot. Touchdown Jesus turned you down. And now Coach Williams, a.k.a. your 19-year-old brother playing for the school no one ever heard of, is on the phone pretending to be a coach saying, we got a kid who's too good for us. Cal Berkeley brings you in. Now, to bring this in context, because we got folks listening today don't know one end of a football from the other. <laughs> but they might have heard of a name called Marshawn Lynch. Right. Marshawn Lynch is the Super Bowl winning running back for the Seattle Seahawks, mm-hmm. known as Beast Mode. Right. Uh, has his own product lines and lit up the world by not talking to reporters and so <laughs> on and so forth. And he was the number two running back in the entire United States behind Adrian Peterson. Is that right? Right. So they've got the number two running back in the country and the dude whose brother pretended to be a coach who <laughs> got him on the phone yes. who got the kid nobody wanted and you guys come in together. Yep. And that so, was how it was. And your quarterback was a guy named Aaron Rodgers. Some people may have heard of him. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so what a wild ride yeah. where you go from nowhere to all of a sudden getting this opportunity. Yeah, sometimes it only takes one person to believe in you. Right. And then in that case, you know, I had my family and my brother who really believed in me, and he went out mm. on a limb and made these calls, took time out of his day when he had college courses and practice mm-hmm. to make calls for me on my behalf, and, you know, doors opened. 
And so talk to us a little bit about your career at Cal. Cal was a great experience. When I got there, we were ranked number 11th in the country, I want to say, at the time. We were uh, number one public institute academically in the country at the time. Mm. So it was a win-win for me, you know, getting turned down from Notre Dame and then going into this blessing was, was huge. So I went in there, and I still, when I got on campus, you know, they saw me, and <laughs> I still heard those same things I heard throughout the course of my life. And that was, uh, man, this guy is too small, he's too short, and we think he may need a red shirt, and we don't know if he, he has what it takes right now, but he can build into it. So, so a red shirt means you sit out a year, yes. go to school, but you can't play. Right, right. So you either sit out and kind of take some time to work on your craft and get bigger and stronger. But I was like, man, I'm determined to play now. I want to play right now. I have the ability. So I was willing to do whatever it took. And even before we went into training camp, I knew that I had to do things a little differently than other people because I was kind of behind the eight ball. I was so-called too short and too small. So I knew I had to excel at those things that I could control. Mm -hmm. So that was like the mental aspect of the game, being able to study film and know what my opponent is doing before they do it. Mm -hmm. That meant attitude and effort, those things I could control. So I had to excel at those things. So one of the things that I did was when I went back home, right before we had training camp and big practices at Cal, we had time to go back home. So I went back home. My family, we had a paper route that we used to do around Dallas where we would deliver these newspapers to these luxury hotels across Dallas. At night, it'll be like a, you know, anywhere from like 12 to 3 shift mm. at midnight. And we're driving around in the middle of the night. And I had my playbook in the back seat with a flashlight learning my plays so that when I got to campus, I had a step above everyone else that when I got to campus, nothing else was going to hold me back. Terminology of a new system wouldn't hold me back. The terminology in a new playbook wouldn't hold me back. That I was going to do everything I could to make an impact right when I got on the field. And that's what I did. When I got back there on campus for training camp, I was ahead of the game. Mentally, I was prepared and sharp as if I was a four-year starter mm. on the roster. And I got a chance, an opportunity, and I maximized it. Mm -hmm. And I ended up being a true freshman. I played right away. So it was me, Marshawn Lynch, Aaron Rodgers, and J.J. Uh, Arrington in the backfield wow. uh, in one time. So here it is. You got a sliver of an opportunity mm -hmm. where they still don't believe in you, mm -hmm. but you are reading the playbook in the back of a car via flashlight. It sounds that's better than Rudy, <laughs> just so you know. That's, that's better than Rudy. But you know, you keep saying this phrase over and over and over again. I hope the folks are hearing it. Excel in what you can control. Yes. Because you can't control what somebody thinks of you. Mm -mm. You can't control what some school's going to do. You can't control if. You guys are going to end up living in a motel. You can't control so many things. Right. But you're going to excel in what you can't control. That's it, man. That's been my mindset from day one. I knew there were some things that I just wasn't great at. Mm -hmm. But those things that I could control, I was going to make sure that those were at the forefront every day and every opportunity that I got. Mm -hmm. My attitude on the field, I was going to make people better. I wanted people to see me as a leader. So I wanted to serve my teammates and make them better. I wanted to have an effort that was unmatched on that football field. So even to this day as a nine-year veteran, 31-year-old running back, when I get the ball, I'm, I'm sprinting all the way to the end zone mm. because that's what I can control, how people view me on the field, how I practice, how I motivate people, how I make people better than me. Those things I can control around me, and I want to excel at that because that's going to keep me until I get my breakthrough. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. We're going to talk about your breakthrough here in a minute. Mm -hmm. Bottom line is uh, Marshawn Lynch goes on to have a great career. Was, mm -hmm. was he a first-round draft choice? Yes, he was. Yeah. So he got picked up by the Buffalo Bills. You get to your senior year. Mm -hmm. It's finally going to be your team. 
Yes. You've earned the right. You've, you've had a good career up to now, but you were kind of the, it was thunder and lightning, you know, right? You guys were kind of the, it was a pairing. Right. And Marshawn was the main actor and you were mm-hmm. a supporting role. Yes. But now you get to be the main guy. Mm-hmm. You've waited three and a half years for this. It's your time. It's your team. And then all of a sudden they bring a new kid in. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So me and Marshawn. It's like Batman and Robin, and I'm getting ready to put on my Batman suit and, you know, got the measurements down and ready to take over. And all of a sudden, you know, they get this guy in named Javit Best, who was a highly uh, recruited running back in the country at the time. High school, phenom, fast, Olympic sprinter, speed, you know, which was good. I embraced competition, but I remember just going on campus and, you know, we have an entranceway into our locker room at the stadium at Cal where the fans would surround. And I remember people would ask me, man, how is Javit going to be? Or could you go get Javit's autograph for me? <laughs> I'm like, man, I finally thought this was going to be my chance to break out and, you know, finally get some exposure. But, you know, I still had this shadows casted over me you mm-hmm. know, by these other players or individuals. So, you know, I can just did what I knew how to do. And that was work. Ended up having a successful senior year, setting myself up for the draft and, thought I would be able to go high and provide for my family. So no matter what your circumstance was, it's just never been handed to you on a plate. Right. You ended up fighting through. Were you the starter your senior year? Yes. And you had a very successful, year, I don't know, 1,500 yards and right. tons of touchdowns mm-hmm. and finished with a nice bowl game and uh, a bunch of touchdowns and, and all that mm-hmm. stuff. So now it's your time. The year before, the first-round draft choice, Marshawn Lynch. Now here comes Justin Forsett, great senior year, beats out the Olympic sprinter. And it's got to be the man. So on draft day, now some of us who are into football, we've seen these NFL draft days, and they make it a big show on ESPN, and families are sitting around with their kid, and they're all expecting to win the lottery that day, and so on and so forth, right? So talk us through briefly. Again, here you are. You fought through. You fought through. Now it's got to be your time. It's got to be, right? Yeah, right. That's how the story should end. (laughs) Yeah, right. Me going in the first round and, you know, me and my family riding off into the sunset. (laughs) But, no, I knew I wasn't going in the first two rounds. So that was a Saturday. On Saturday, that was the first two rounds to go. And uh, the later rounds happened on Sunday. So I'm getting ready. You thought you were a third round. I thought I was a third round That's pick. what your agent told you. Yep. So I'm getting ready to go in the third round. And the third round comes and goes. And I'm not picked. Fourth round comes and goes. I'm not picked. Fifth round, I'm getting frustrated. I'm like, man, not this all over again. So I decided to take a nap, hopefully, you know, some team will call me and wake me up out of my sleep, and it'll be the best awakening ever. I wake up. We're in late sixth round. Nothing's happening. We're, by this time, we're starting to get calls from other teams for free agency pickups. And what free agency is that you're just getting signed to a temporary contract. You're not really on the roster. Mm-hmm. It's a lot harder to make a team being a free agent. They, the team doesn't have that much invested in you. Mm-hmm. So it would have been a long route for me. So we're talking to teams, and actually we're talking to the Buffalo Bills, and my dad's on the phone with them. I'm trying to work out something. Maybe I can come in for free agency, and it's seventh round now, and I don't think I'm getting picked up. And my dad's on the phone, and the Seattle Seahawks call, and my dad's talking to him. He's like, we're on the phone with the Bills right now, so we're going to have to call you back. And they were like, nope, you might want to pick this phone call up because uh, we're about to pick him with pick 233 here in the seventh round. So... I was excited and happy that I was going to the Seattle Seahawks in the, in the seventh round, 233. So you got picked 233. And again, forgiveness to all those who are very familiar with the NFL. Mm-hmm. There's only 256 picks in the NFL draft. Mm-hmm. The last pick, 
256, which you were 23 spots away from. That pick has a name. Can you tell the folks what the name is? Mr. Irrelevant. Mr. Irrelevant. Now, that, yes. that's just a name you want to have, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, so nobody wants that title. But you end up getting as close as can be to Mr. Irrelevant. Right. Now, it would be very easy and very human and very normal for somebody to go, I've been down on my luck. I fought through all this adversity. They didn't want me in the high school team. And then I earn my way on the high school team and I help make them champions. Mm-hmm. I set a bunch of records. Now they didn't want me in college. And I end up fighting through, and my brother impersonates coaches <laughs> to end up helping me get a spot. And then Cal picks me up, and I end up playing on a top-flight program with a, a Hall of Fame quarterback for sure and a potentially yeah. Hall of Fame running back. Yeah. Met my wife there. I should Met say your that. wife there. Now, I, we're going to talk about your wife because what people have to know is Angie Forsett is volleyball royalty. She yes. was a member of the U.S. Olympic volleyball team, an mm. outside hitter. Very like my wife, Beverly. In fact, I'd be fair to say my wife, Beverly, was like a mentor to her, like mm-hmm. a big sister to her. Definitely. And they spent many a night at our home. And so you met your wife there. So God is good. You got a great deal there. Yes. But now you fight through it, Cal, and now you're expecting the best, and you don't get it again. Yeah. You know, there's a lot of folks listening to this have had things happen to them that they didn't want to have happen in life. Mm-hmm. And in today's world, it is very easy to give up, give up quick, give up early, it's easy to become a victim. It's easy to blame others. It's easy to say, you know, the circumstances are obviously telling me that dream isn't going to happen. What is it about you that kept you going? And when you got drafted in the seventh round, were you bitter? Were you disappointed? Or, or what was your attitude towards that? I was motivated. Mm. I was frustrated up to a point where I knew I should have been drafted higher, but I just used that as fuel. Like, I knew that all I needed was an opportunity. Mm-hmm. That's all I could ask for. It's easy to get in this league in some regards, but it's harder to stay. Mm-hmm. So I knew that if I just excel at what I control, then I had a chance, an opportunity to have a long career in this league because I believed in myself and I was fighting for something greater than myself. Like I said, even at an early age, like I knew that I never wanted my sons or my kids to ever deal with those issues that I dealt with. I don't want to have to watch my kids go to bed hungry or, you know, go to sleep without power or take baths with bottled water. It's like I wanted more for them. Now, here's the thing. You know, my story came here with nothing, got run Mm -hmm. over by a car, you know, 13 surgeries, $250,000 in debt. I've had people come up to me and say, Brian, you know, not a lot of really bad stuff has ever happened to me. I was raised in a nice home went to a nice school, I had a nice family, but I never had all these terrible things happen to me, and that's why I'm not motivated. And and that's what some people say. Uh, So some people will even use your great story as an excuse for them to not dig in. But at the end of the day, just as an aside here, what would you say to those folks who maybe they've never had the power turned off, or maybe they've never had to live in room 108? How do you go about finding the motivation? Why be good when great is available? Mm. You have an opportunity to be great and have impact on this earth Mm. before you leave. And I'm all about chasing a legacy. Mm. Like, I want to leave something behind for my kids, 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 kids. Mm. I want to be great. I don't want to be good. I don't just want to go through life just being an average Joe. I want to leave something behind that's something special and that's Mm long-lasting. And I'm not talking about touchdowns or Super Bowls or money, but I want to build relationships and help people and serve people in a manner that it lasts long beyond uh, me being on this earth. Mm. And everybody has that available to them. Everybody has that. 
So you get drafted. You get to the Seattle Seahawks. Did they have a rose parade for you up there? Were you <laughs> were you handed the keys of the city? I wish. Um, <laughs> but no, I came there. Usually you keep three running backs on the roster. They already had one established starter in free agency. They paid a lot of money to these other running backs named TJ Duckett and Julius Jones. So I know TJ. Uh, you know, I'm the odd man out statistically. Everything yeah. says you're not going to make the roster. The number says it. History says it. Right. Everything is against me. Right. But, you know, again, I'm chasing something bigger than myself. And I know I have to excel at what I can control. I can't look at the numbers or the situation. I got to keep my head down, keep working. And I started doing things I'd never done before, like catching punts. Like they always say in this league, the more you can do, the longer you stay. So I start picking up other traits and, uh, you know, kind of recreating myself right. and adding stuff to my, my tool belt. And, you know, I was able to stay. But it didn't work out. Yeah. Because as much as you did, as hard as you worked, you got through all the cuts. You made the roster. You made the team. Hallelujah. You and Angie get a place up there. You furnish it, the whole deal. Oh, yeah. And then what happens? HGTV. We were setting that thing up <laughs> in our little apartment in, in Washington. <laughs> but then after the first week, after making the team, I get a call when I was in the barber shop. Getting a nice haircut. Uh, they said, you need to come in and bring your playbook in. We're about to release you. After one week? After one week. And you didn't even get a chance to play? Nope. Not at all. I was inactive that week. Didn't play. Played the Bills. Came back home. I had to get ready to pack my bags up and break a lease and move furniture Jeez. and all that stuff. Wow. And so life in the NFL. And again, we all watch this stuff and we don't realize, you know, you holler at the players and this and that in any of these sports. The average person watching has no idea what's going on or the life of the person right. in the game. So you end up getting picked up by Indianapolis. Indianapolis Colts. I'm thankful. I'm like, man, Coach Tony Dungy, great man of character and yeah. integrity. Yeah. Always loved his style, his coaching, who he was as a person. So I was like, man, finally, I'm going to be with the Indianapolis Colts, be here playing with Peyton Manning, winning Super Bowls, spend the rest of my career here. It wouldn't be bad. So yeah. four weeks later, I'm cut from there. Wow. I'm released, and I ended up getting picked back up by uh, the Seattle Seahawks. But you told me a story when you were leaving Indianapolis uh -huh. that when you weren't quite sure where things were at, your dad was coming. Seahawks said, we want you back. Mm -hmm. Your dad comes up to help you move, which uh, your dad's a good man. Right. But he gave you some news that day that was hard to swallow. Yeah, we were driving back at night in Indy and driving back to the airport there. And he just you know, turned the radio down and told me, he's like, Justin, I want to let you know your mom's cancer is back. She's battling thyroid cancer off and on through her life, and uh, the doctors don't know how much longer she has to live. Mm. So I took that. And I'm like, man, I'm already having a you know a crazy beginning of my career, and to get this news, you know, it definitely hurts. And I knew, like, man, I have to be able to keep this job so I can be able to help my family through this trying time. So I was playing for more than myself. Like I had an opportunity again to go to Seattle and, and and play the game I love and earn a living. But it wasn't just about me anymore. So mm -hmm. I had to do it for my family, and I was motivated, and I wanted to fight. And you did. Mm -hmm. And you went on to become a favorite up there in Seattle. They mm -hmm. gave you the nickname J-Force. Yeah. And all is good. You're there for a number of years. You're playing ball like every other NFL guy. And then you get a call from the coach who says, hey, we got a great idea. You remember your old running back, <laughs> Marshawn Lynch? You know that stud, yeah. best friend of yours? groomsman in your wedding guy yeah we're thinking of bringing him in what do you think about getting the band back together man he comes to me offers me that i'm excited i'm like okay cool he's marshawn lynch he's like a brother to me very close we were roommates in college at one point and you know sure would love to have him great 
So he comes over. They end up trading for him. And he came over. And I was under the impression that we're going to go and have a one-two punch and, you know, do our thing together. But coach set me inside and said, hey, no, that's not going to be the case. You know, he's going to have the job. And you just have to, you know, keep fighting and, you know, use this as motivation. So now they're bringing in your, one of your best friends. Yeah. And you're getting bumped down the roster over that. Yeah. And he ends up having this great year, mm-hmm. makes this famous beast mode play. Beast quake. The, where the whole stadium was like an earthquake. Uh-huh. He knocked over seven guys, runs in the end zone in the playoffs. Right. As soon as the season ends, you're gone. Yep. Pretty much the end of yeah, my run again, there in Seattle. People have no idea what's behind the scenes here with these sports where here's one of your best friends that they bring in. They use him to wedge you out the door. <laughs> yeah, it was crazy. I was happy for him and his mm-hmm. success because I know he had battled through some adversity throughout his career. You know, I knew there was room for both of us. At the end, it didn't work out, but, you know, everything happens for a reason, and right. I moved on. And So you move on. Here you are now. You're, you're four or five years in the league at this stage? I'm going into my fifth year after right. Seattle. So you're a proven commodity in the NFL. Right. They brought in a guy who's probably going to the Hall of Fame. Mm-hmm. So there's probably room at the end for you somewhere. Mm-hmm. How'd that work out? Well, I'm just going to my fourth year, and, you know, we're supposed to get a contract deal mm-hmm. worked out with uh, Seattle. Ended up didn't happen, and, you know, I was just kind of out in the cold. You get released by Seattle, right? Well, my contract was Okay, expired. your contract was expired. Yeah. So you're expecting to get a nice, lucrative free agent oh, contract. Oh, yeah, a fad contract. <laughs> right? Fad Because you're, you're a proven commodity. Right. You're able to read defenses. You know what you're doing. You're a proven commodity. You're not too small anymore. You're not too slow anymore. And you don't get picked up. Didn't get picked up. There were months went by. I'm looking at my phone every day, texting my agent, what's going on? Why isn't anybody calling? Are you doing your job? Do I need mm-hmm. to fire you? <laughs> All these things running through my mind. And, you know, I ended up going back to Cal, just, you know, working out and training and waiting for my opportunity, waiting for my shot. And eventually you got a phone call. I was at my parents' house, living at my parents' house for a minute. And wow. Houston, Texas, give me a call, say you, we want to work you out. Uh, so it wasn't even like a anything solid but it was a good lead and went and worked out and I thought I had a great workout for them at the end of the workout they brought everybody back into this room and said hey man we let each one of you guys you know talk to coach or whatnot everybody was going to talking to coach everybody coming out smiling things like that and when it was getting ready for my turn to talk to the coach and the person running the workout they said everybody pack up and leave we're going to the airport I'm like what I didn't get to talk to anybody. Did I Did I just do that horrible where I don't even get a chance to talk? And right when we were getting ready to walk out the door, they said, Justin, you stay. We're about to sign you to a deal, so I'm going to work something out. So, you know, I'm signed with the Houston Texans, and I'm fighting another uphill battle because this is one of the most established run games in the NFL at the time with Arian Foster leading the way with the best tandem in the league with Ben Tate as the backup, and here's little old me. <laughs> the third amigo. <laughs> yeah, coming in to uh, fight for a spot. We'll talk about this, but you never really had huge yards in Texas. Mm-hmm. However, your work ethic, your attitude mm-hmm. caught the eye of a coach by the name of Gary Kubiak, who mm-hmm. was the head coach at the time. Right. And... uh even though they didn't keep you after a year, he said, you can play for me anytime. Anytime. He made that promise to me. Right. And so that seed is sown. Great. But now you've kind of reestablished yourself. And finally, you get a team that says, we want you and we're willing to pay you. Yeah. Right? Yes. The Jacksonville Jaguars. So here it comes. The knight in shining armor. You finally got your breakthrough. These guys value me. They're writing a check. 
I'm finally making the money these NFL top running backs are supposed to make. Right. But somehow along the line, this thing all turned sideways. So yeah. just when we're getting, there's got to be a happy ending somewhere here. Be. I, I, there are people listening to this podcast that are driving off the road. <laughs> They're like, when's the happy ending? <laughs> this is like good. the Shawshank Redemption, <laughs> only they capture the guy in the sewer pipe. Okay, <laughs> what's the deal? When does the happy ending happen? But we're a long way from a happy ending. Yeah, because you thought, okay, now I've got it. I've got the money. I've got this. But tell the folks what happened to Jacksonville. Yeah. So 2013. Ended up being the darkest moment of my career. Signed with the Jacksonville Jaguars with so much promise and so much hope, so much opportunity. Ended up getting hurt in training camp the first day of full pad practice. And I come back, missed the rest of the training camp preseason. Then I come back, start playing sparingly, working my way back in. I was fine. I was like, okay, well, I can work my way back into a role. But I was never really given a true shot. I remember ended up getting demoted. Uh, relegated to the scout team where I was just out helping uh, the first team defense get ready for the games. I wasn't playing on Sundays. remember just driving to work, just feeling frustrated and angry. I mean, it was like where I lived in, in Jacksonville. It was probably like a 20, 30-minute commute every day. And I just didn't feel wanted. I knew the coaches didn't want me there at this point in, in the season. They, At times, it wasn't like a, a very nice place to work. I was laughed at. All sorts of things where you just get frustrated and you just... You say laughed at. You guys are in the meeting rooms and the coach are kind of using you to make a joke. Yeah, yeah. You as, get a little sly, little remarks. I mm-hmm. remember a coach getting up and saying Wally Pip foresaid, you know, the whole story of Wally Pip who got injured and uh, lost his spot to someone else. So, you know, saying basically that, you know, you can lose your spot or we'll lose mm-hmm. your spot. So uh, little things like that, those little jabs hurt. So you go to a place and work where... You battle with, man, I'm frustrated and angry, but can I still have impact at the job? And I was just like really in a dark space because up until that point, you know, everything that I could control, I excelled at it and it usually meant success for me. But at this point, they didn't really care about those things that I could control, my attitude and my effort and those things like they really had no need for it. So Mm -hmm. it was really a godsend for me. It was a dark moment. You said they kept saying to you, we know what you can do. Yeah, I kept going to the coaches like, man, just give me a shot. Give me an opportunity. And if I fail, it's on me. I'm okay with failing. If it's on my terms, I get an opportunity and I don't make it, okay. I did my best and we'll move on. But they kept telling me those words. We know what you can do. We know what you can do. But that was not an affirming we know what you can do. That was a limiting. We know what you can do. Right. They placed me in a box. They figured that, man, you've been playing Six years, we got tape on you. We want to see what these other younger guys could do. Mm-hmm. So it was incredibly frustrating and hurtful at the time. And I remember after being relegated to the scout team, I ended up being inactive, which means I wasn't playing on Sundays. And then down the road, a couple of weeks later, I remember them saying, okay, we'll give you a shot to play this week. So I'm like, okay, and now I get to go out and, and show what I could do and get another opportunity. I'm going to try to make the best with it. And I get my first carry, first opportunity to touch the ball, I get tackled, and I break my foot. And I'm laying right there in the middle of Reliance Stadium in Houston, Texas, looking up in the dome and thinking, man, this is probably the last time I will ever play football in the National Football League and get to do what I love to do. And uh, I just felt like I had so much left to give on that on that football field as I, as I limped off. I was carried off that field. Mm-hmm. The dream was gone. Yeah. 
and you had folks who didn't believe in you, mm-hmm. ridiculing you, putting you down. At this stage now, your own attitude is, is getting the best of you on occasion. Yeah. And you get one chance, and with that one chance, you go break your foot. Yeah. And it's like, you know. <laughs> so, so what happened? What was the turning point? What happened from there? So throughout that time and that process in my life, I was able to do what I call a self-scouting report. And a self-scouting report, what we use in the NFL, is something that we do on our off week and on our bye week on our schedule. We look at our strengths and our weaknesses. We look at our tendencies, Mm. things that we could do better, things that are are negative that can be used against us on the playing field. And we try to better it. We try to better ourselves by looking ourselves in the mirror. I love this. So it gave me a chance in that dark moment when nothing was happening for me, I was frustrated and I was angry. It gave me a chance to do a self-scouting report. What I need to improve? What can I do better? And I figured there was a lot of things I could do. And one of the things that helped me get through that situation was I had to build a team, a build a huddle, a circle. Mm-hmm. People that could pour into me, that could speak positivity in my life when everything else around me is chaos and and it's negative, when the headlines are negative, when people around me are speaking negative thoughts into me and giving me negative vibes and negative energy. You need a team that's going to keep you accountable, that's going to be transparent with you, and that's going to be truthful with you. Not yes men, but men that are going to be honest and uh, allow you to vent and be vulnerable because when you're vulnerable, that allows growth, Mm. and you're being challenged, and you're being pruned, and and you need that. And that's what I was going through, and I didn't like it. That pruning phase does not feel good at all. I can tell you that. I've been pricked, and I've been pruned, and all these things, and it allowed me to be the man who I am today. Mm. I'm a better man because of that time in Jacksonville. It was a dark moment, Mm. and I just had to change my perspective. And I was asking the wrong questions throughout that time and throughout the course of my career. When bad things happened to me, I kept asking, why me? Why things like this happen to me all the time? No one else. And what I should have been asking was, how? How can I use these bits of adversity for my good? Mm. These things do not have to define me, but they can refine me and make me better. So I had to change my focus. My focus became, okay, it's not about me. I'm here for a greater impact and greater purpose. I'm going to use this for my good. And I don't care what's happening around me. That mission doesn't change. So I'm going to be great, and I'm going to chase greatness. I'm going to chase impact no matter what. Mm. So I'm going to have a team that's going to continue to pour into me and encourage me to keep fighting when times get rough because I need that, and we all need that. Mm -hmm. And I had a chaplain, and I had a a guy on staff that was pouring into me during that tough time, and I realized that I need to continue to make that circle, add to that circle, add Mm. people in that circle that I trust and are reliable and I learned that my identity had become, during that time, that dark time in Jacksonville, had become my work. Mm. And the way I felt and my emotions were depending on how I was performing on the field. And this I is think- huge stuff. <laughs> I mean, this is not football. Yeah. I mean, there's nothing you've said in the last five minutes is football. <laughs> yeah. You know, a self-scouting report. Yeah. I mean, what a brilliant thing to yeah. analyze those strengths and weaknesses. Go build a huddle. Yeah. That support team. And you said, without being vulnerable, you can't grow. Right. I mean, that's brilliant stuff. And you got to have relationships in your life where people are speaking into you, being transparent, where you can vent, but ultimately where you can grow. Mm-hmm. And then lastly here, there's some great stuff here. Yeah. This whole dynamic of finding your identity in your work, which I think is the classic American dynamic. I think it's a worldwide issue. Mm-hmm. 
but I see it. Obviously, Western civilization is more prone to this. But I really see this, especially in a place like the States, where work is such a high value, Canada, same way, where who we are and what we do become synonymous with one another. Right. Because that's where we receive affirmation, praise, acknowledgement, and reward. Mm. So how did you tackle the whole identity? Because here's the thing. You know, we walked through Buffini Company here today. By the way, how'd you like Buffini Company? Was I it? love this. amazing here. <laughs> It's, I think I'm going to live here yeah. from now on. Uh-huh. They say it's like the uh, personal growth Disneyland. <laughs> it is. You know? But you're walking through here today, and people are taking selfies with you and asking mm-hmm. for autographs and doing this. You're in the NFL, man. <laughs> and we had Bronco fans, and we had Raven fans, and we had Seahawks fans coming. Mm-hmm. Oh, J-Fours and all that kind of good stuff. It's harder in your job not to find your identity in it. Yeah. How did you ultimately fight through the process of, what and who you find your identity in as opposed to it's all about how many yards, my tackles, my this, it's all about me, my work is who I am. You know, unfortunately for me, I had to get down to my lowest point Mm. to realize that I didn't need my job for me to have significance. Mm. My significance wasn't depending on how well I perform at my job. Like my significance is about me and who God created me to be. Mm. And that's what was important. Like I have purpose. There's a plan for me and I have a place of impact on this earth. I am special. I am uniquely made. And I believe with all my heart that I'm here to do something greater than work. And I believe this of every single individual listening to this. (laughs) Right? Yes. Because it's a true deal. So I'm looking at, you even look at people like Ronda Rousey. Yeah. Like, I saw that last fight, or last couple of fights. The UFC fighter. The UFC fighter. And I'm looking at her face Mm. because I've been there Mm. after facing defeat. And you just feel empty, like zero, Mm. like you're worth nothing. And that's a sad place to be in. That's a giveaway that you have become, your identity has become what you do. Mm -hmm. Like, I've said this for a long time. Football is what I do. It's not who I am. And if you get that confused, it's detrimental not only to your career, but to you personally. Mm. How you treat your wife or your spouse, your husband or your kids, those things can be affected just because things didn't go well at work. Mm -hmm. There has to be a balance. Mm -hmm. We can't just pour everything. Like I always say, I not only want to be an all pro football player, but I want to be an all pro dad. Mm -hmm. I want to be an all pro husband. Mm -hmm. And just because I want to be an all-pro football player doesn't mean that takes away from me being an all-pro dad. Right, right. Both and instead of either or. Yes. Now, how did you ultimately dig your way out of this? You're in the very pit. Uh By the way, Jacksonville stinks. Terrible. So they're the worst team in the NFL. (laughs) At the time. And you can't make the squad. Uh Uh-huh. So you can't make the squad on the worst team in the NFL. They finally give you a shot. You break your foot. How many rungs lower can we get? You finally get to this. You, you lay down your identity. Now, how did you start to build up? And you had this turnaround from that personally and emotionally that also led to some great things in your career. I learned that I had to surrender. Mm. I had to let go. I always felt like I was the guy that had to be in control of everything. Right. Like where my career went and how well I was doing. I had to learn to let go and just do the best I could at what I could control and let the chips fall where they may. And on a practical level, what I know about you and have known about mm-hmm. you for a long time is you really engaged in a commitment to service at that time. Right. So this is totally counterintuitive mm-hmm. <laughs> that 
at your very lowest ebb, when so many people get so focused on themselves, navel gazing, we call it. Yeah. You know, you decided at that time you were going to give back. You were going to give back to the community. You were going to give back to teammates. You were going to give back to wherever you could. You were going to commit yourself to service at that time. Right. Um, so many times in our lives, especially when we face adversity, we become isolated. Mm-hmm. And it's all about us. And I felt that it was extremely important to remember my purpose and my impact here on earth. And I was chasing a legacy. So I wanted to be able to serve and build relationships. So serving saved my career. Wow. Serving saved my life in so many ways where I was able to give to other people, not only just financial, but time, and energy, and effort. Like I was able to go and serve my community, lift them up and share with them the adversity that I was facing and things that I've overcome, not realizing that, what I went through was medicine for someone else. Mm. So many times we get isolated and don't want to share the things that we've been through, right. not realizing that somebody needs that. Somebody needs that for medicine, for healing, mm-hmm. just so they can understand that, man, I'm not in this by myself. I'm not the only one that's ever been through this. We need that in mm-hmm. serving. Allow me to have that type of impact, go out of the the woe is me phase that Mm -hmm. I was going through through adversity. You got your eyes up off yourself onto others and in serving them, you saved yourself. Yes. What are some of the things you did? I know service is Uh normally a a very private thing with you. Just to give folks some of the examples. Here's an NFL guy with a broken foot with a team that doesn't want him. (laughs) Right. What's that guy do? I went out into the community, helped anywhere I could, where there was a family dealing with their house being caught up with fire and the house burned down. I was able to go out and help them. One of my teammates was battling issues, whether that's spousal problems or financial problems, whatever it is, I was there to help and serve. Even the little things like driving people to the airport. Mm. Just wanted to let them know that, man, I'm here to serve you and I want to help you. And then, you know, going throughout my career, just helping people in the community and organizations like uh, Samaritan's Feet or going out and help the Flint water crisis, people dealing with contaminated water in Flint, Michigan. So... Serving can do so much for other people, but also for you. And what I've heard you say is that in serving people, you took your eyes off yourself, which Mm -hmm. you said here a minute ago, Mm -hmm. but it also gave you this freedom and this peace. Yes. And ultimately, that freedom and peace was what allowed you to receive the next opportunity that came along. Yeah, man. Because you thought you were done. I thought I'm on the worst team, (laughs) and they're telling me I'm the worst player, and now I'm injured. Yep. You do this self-scouting report you build your huddle you realize what your identity is and finally what it's not you start serving and then one day your phone rings yeah and a seed you'd planted a long time ago with a coach named gary kubiak who himself got fired Mm -hmm. he becomes the offensive coordinator for the baltimore ravens a football crazed town (laughs) yeah for a football crazy world and some magical things start to happen yeah, man, I honestly thought I was done. I kept training, working out, just in case I got an opportunity. And Coach Kubiak stood on the table for me. They wanted someone else. They wanted another running back, but he ended up choosing another team. And it worked out where I was able to go there and get an opportunity to play. And at this phase in my career, I just promised myself that I was going to make the most of the opportunity, have fun, and have impact. And this was in 2014? Mm-hmm, 2014. So you get to go to the Baltimore Ravens. Mm-hmm. And what happens that season? So I have the best uh, season of my career. <laughs> I get an opportunity to play. I go to a Pro Bowl. 
I go out and I'm the top five rusher in the NFL and, you know, get all these accolades after 15 years of doing the same things basically over and over High again. school, college, and what, year seven in the pros? Yes. And finally, finally, you're not too small. <laughs> you're not too slow. And by the way, Baltimore had a problem because they had a running back that committed domestic violence right. at Ray Rice and became shunned by the NFL. Mm-hmm. And now they get a guy that's going through that, and they bring in the guy that's serving, yeah. the guy that no longer is finding his identity into it and is holding it all with an open hand. Yeah. But now you're playing with freedom. Yes, it's different. It's different. It's different. And, and, and as hard as you worked and as much effort as you put in, now you're playing with freedom as a person. And that freedom shows up in a pro bowl season where yeah. your peers say, who are the best guys at their position? And your peers say, that guy. Yeah. Your peers vote you in the top 100 players in the NFL, number 65. <laughs> By the way, when you're picked number 233 in the draft and there's already four or 500 guys in there, <laughs> yep. that means you're number 700. Yes. So you, you came a long way, baby. Yeah, I did. I did. It <laughs> felt great, man. It's just yeah. so much... You know, uh, hard work and sacrifice and heartache and, you know, it all paid off. That's great. It's a fabulous story. And it's a story that continues on. You just finished up a season with the Denver Broncos. And again, you've had this somewhat nomadic life. You're still too small. Yeah. <laughs> still you know? freakishly good looking. Yeah, <laughs> still freakishly good looking. <laughs> I will have that. But the dynamic is this. You have been there and done that through all of these things. Mm-hmm. The reason I wanted you to come and share on this podcast today and expose so many people in so many different places to uh, a guy they may have known, known of your name, but they don't know your story. My goal is to try to impact and improve the lives of people. Mm. And I just think you have such an amazing story because you have known so many struggles. But I've also known you a long time, and you have this phenomenal attitude and you are an inspiration. What advice would you have for somebody listening today who's maybe going through one of the many obstacles you encountered of how to turn it around? Well, I, I learned this from a friend a while ago. He said, if you live for people's acceptance, you'll die from their rejection. Mm. We have to get out of the mindset of we're living for others and their approval. Mm-hmm. Like you are fearfully and wonderfully made. You're a unique person. Mm-hmm. Be you. Be great. Don't worry about whatever's happening on the lanes beside you. Stay in your lane because your lane is great. Your journey is great. Mm-hmm. Sometimes, especially in my career, where you see guys that are riding around in the private jets and the Bentleys and everything like that, and you want to compare yourself to them. Right. And you don't know what they've been through. Right. So enjoy your journey. Enjoy the process. Embrace that grind. And if you embrace it and if you excel at what you control, build a great team and serve. The sky's the limit for you. Mm -hmm. Beautiful stuff. I could talk to you all day, (laughs) and I hope to talk to you some more. I have a little tradition on the podcast, which you don't really know much about, which I have uh, five kind of interesting questions for our audience to listen in to get a little piece of J-Force. So here we go. What's the one best piece of advice you've ever gotten? Probably one I just shared. If you live for people's acceptance, you'll die from their rejection. Who gave you that? Lecrae. (laughs) Come on, Lecrae. All right. Great Christian recording artist. Yes. Yeah, very, very good. All right, that's beautiful. What one talent or gift do you wish you possessed that you currently don't? Probably, I wish I could jump higher. (laughs) I wish I could dunk. (laughs) 
Well, that sounds weird. Come to the game tonight. My son Alex is Duncan. (laughs) You know, he's all that in a bag of chips. Okay. That's good. Next, what book has been most instrumental in your life? There's been many, but I'll point out this one just for my career, Training Camp by John Gordon. Nice. It's an amazing book. We love John Gordon. Yeah, he's an amazing guy. He is amazing. Wrote yeah. The Energy Bus. Uh, he's a future podcast Oh yeah. as well. We've been friends for a long time. But what was it about the training camp that really impacted you? Man, just letting go. I know we try to be perfect in the things that we do, but sometimes when you're chasing perfection, you become paralyzed mm-hmm. uh, when you don't meet that bar that you set. But you just got to take each moment and try to live fully in a moment mm-hmm. that you're in and not try to be perfect all the time chase greatness not perfection love it love it great book highly recommend it all right favorite song or artist what's the j4 song what's the one that gets you going that's uh oh man my pregame list is pretty diverse i say i got a lot of cray on there i like lauren hill throwback lauren hill i like old school the gap band come on Um, the gap band (laughs) i do a lot of throwbacks so stevie wonder is up there Oh, nice. I won't sing today, but maybe next episode. Okay, come on. A little superstition. <laughs> love it. Love it. Yeah. All right. What movie do you watch over and over again? Oh, Coming to America. Easy. <laughs> Easy. He good. He, he good. That boy good. <laughs> oh, that was the trash can. Yeah. <laughs> That's great stuff. Sexual chocolate. Best Sexual band ever. <laughs> <laughs> we believe the children are a few. <laughs> Let them lead the way. Oh, you are feeling it, aren't you? (laughs) Well, let me say this to you. What a joy it's been to spend this last hour with you. Thank Thank you you for being so transparent. Thank you for sharing from your heart. I know you to be a great man of faith. I know you have a fantastic family. And I know you have a tremendous future. And, you know, you're getting set up now in the the years to come to go and share more of your message with more people. And I'm excited and happy to support you in any way I can in that. I believe that what you have to share is a message that more people need to hear. And I know you have a heart to serve and not be about you. And so if you're interested in having Justin Forsett speak at your company or organization, you reach out. uh, uh, What's the website, Justin? J Forsett at jforsett.com. J Forsett, F-O-R-S-E-T-T. Yep. Dot com. Um, We're certainly excited to be plugging you into a few things we've got planned. And uh, very, very proud of you. Very, very excited to have you here. Honored to have you in the studio. Glad to call you my friend. And glad you joined us today. And for those of you who aren't football fans, you might start becoming a football fan and realizing, (laughs) man, you judged them. You thought they were dumb jocks. (laughs) Underneath those helmets and underneath those chest plates, there are great heads and great hearts. And we met one here today. Well, I hope you enjoyed today's show. Please make sure you head over and leave us a review on iTunes. If this is more of the kind of content you want to hear, we want to hear from you. Love hearing your feedback. Our goal is to positively influence as many folks as we can, so be sure to share this show with others. You haven't heard 15 minutes of commercials here today. This show doesn't have any sponsors. This show is designed to impact and improve your life, and all we ask in return is you share it with your friends and let them know if they're interested in having their life impacted and improved for the better. So as I finish here today, I'm going to leave you with a little Irish blessing that my grandfather always said. May the roads rise to meet you, and may the wind always be at your back. May the rain fall soft upon your fields and the sunshine warm upon your face. And until we meet again, may God hold you in the hollow of his hand. We'll see you next time. 